Kevin Hargadon, you are director of the Jesuit Centre for Faith and Justice, and you have launched a Green Manifesto. Now, this will concern the ecology and the environment. There are many manifestos that have been launched by political parties and groupings all around the world. What makes yours different and why do we need one in Ireland? Uh, thanks, Pat. Uh, our manifesto for a Green New Deal is different because it's informed by the very best of Catholic social teaching. Uh, this idea at the heart of Laudato Si, Pope Francis's environmental encyclical, that our ecological crisis is inextricably linked to our social crises. So this uh, concept is called integral ecology, and we think that it's a lacking piece in the puzzle as to how to uh, respond in a distinctive and appropriate way in Ireland to our uh, climate and biodiversity crisis. So the, the essay, which we've entitled Manifesto for a Green New Deal, is an attempt to uh, bring the, this excellent theological principle into dialogue with contemporary, secular Irish political discourse. And we think that if people are open-minded enough to consider it, what they're going to find is that uh, this ancient wisdom of the Christian ethical tradition has real relevance for the contemporary problems that we face. Can you give some concrete example for people? Uh, what concretely, like when the rubber hits the road, might it make it different from, say, a green policy and then an integral ecology policy? Absolutely. This is the, that's the, the key distinction that we think this essay is able to bring. At the moment in Ireland, what we're concerned with is trying to craft a couple of a really useful green policies. We, we, we're, everybody's in favour of making Ireland more environmentally sustainable. We don't want to be climate laggards anymore. We recognise that the young people expect us to act. So we're doing our best to develop a policy here and a policy there. You know, there might be some measure on fuel efficiency for cars and then another measure on uh, subsidies for housing insulation. And they're all little bits and pieces, but they don't add up to anything coherent. And the reason why is because largely speaking, Irish political conversation and Irish social discourse continues to imagine that environmental issues are their own separate category along with all the other issues. But the crisis has gone so dramatically out of control that we can no longer afford that kind of siloification of our of our concepts and instead what we're proposing in integral ecology is that we stop looking around for separate little green environmental policy initiatives and instead we reconsider the entire social scene around the problem of the climate and biodiversity crisis so that housing becomes the place we go to resolve this crisis. Transport policy becomes the place we go to resolve this housing crisis. Educational curricula development or uh, rural development or agriculture policy, these all become the front lines for our responses to climate breakdown. And the end result, therefore, is that we don't just create a situation where we're emitting less carbon, you know, which is an abstract scientific concept that doesn't really get people's hearts pumping. Instead, what we develop is a society that's more just, that's more equitable, and as a consequence is also more environmentally sustainable. So it's a big conceptual mind shift. It's an ecological conversion, to use the language of John Paul II. And we think that this idea has real relevance for our secular, non-religious collaborators, for what Francis would call a people of goodwill. So the essay is an attempt to, to put this Christian thinking in terms that everybody is able to engage with. It strikes me though that it's a massive endeavor because even when we look at some of the proposals, say put forward by the Green Party and Greens where issues like transport, greenhouse and gas emissions, 
And the farmers pop up and say, we're going to lose our jobs. We've been stymied enough. And we have seen through COVID air travel, for example, has not been able to take place the way it should because of, of COVID-19. But hundreds of thousands of people have lost their jobs. So how do you craft a policy with this ecological conversion that means that people are still going to be able to live and earn a living in the 21st century? It's That's a big the, Yeah, this is the exact core the kernel of our problem uh, because we think that uh, when the conversation is approached from that perspective there's only two possible outcomes the first is what we call technocracy where a bunch of scientists and social policy experts gather all the power together and they in you know Leinster House and the various other buildings in Dublin decide for the rest of us undemocratically and they just give us the medicine and we have to take it and all the board and mono workers can just suffer it because the plan works on a whiteboard or in a flowchart. And the second option is even more terrifying and we call it eco-fascism, which is where you don't necessarily have uh, the, the technocratic impulse. Instead, you just have uh, the sheer force of the state coming up against people and imposing the will of whoever is is the ruler. What we're proposing instead is that integral ecology is the most effective way to achieve what we call a just transition. So you're right that we need this massive overhaul. Farmers in Ireland, for example, they are threatened by the reality that we have to reduce our greenhouse gas emissions. But as it stands, their incomes are reducing year on year. Their levels of indebtedness are increasing year on year. Agricultural policy in Europe and in Ireland overwhelmingly favours the big farmers uh, so that the small farmers who make up the fabric of our communities are actually put under huge pressure and are increasingly taking on second and third jobs and are not being able to pass their farms on to their descendants because it's not an attractive lifestyle. So engaged positively, what we see is that perhaps the ecological move is the, is the best possible chance to redeem agriculture in Ireland. So when you approach it positively with this just transition idea in place, operating out of the key Christian insight that our social crises are inextricably linked with our environmental crises, then new possibilities emerge. So the answer to your question is that we are able to make the dramatic changes that we want, but we need to make them democratically instead of what we have at the moment, which is experts lecturing and hectoring. Nonetheless, you've mentioned there Europe and the way the farmers here have suffered under the, the EU, and that has been widely documented, but nothing has been done about it. And it's just continued and continued and has been a pattern where more and more small farmers are, as you say, having to diversify into other jobs. So this vision that you have, it's a Christian vision. But it also needs the conversion of Europe and some would say the conversion of Ireland, because for most people, we're living in a secular post-Christian world. Yeah, I mean, uh, we want to be very clear that by using these theological ideas, we're not asking people to become Christians. Of course, we're not opposed to that, uh, but you can continue in your militant atheism and recognize that Christians have stumbled on an excellent way of describing reality when they talk about integral ecology. When we consider, say, for example, the problems with the common agricultural policy of the European Union, what we push up against, I think, is this basic democratic deficit that we think fuels a lot of these problems and why they end up just being kind of predictably non-transformative. So what we propose in this paper is a radical experimentation with grassroots democratic deliberation. This is a great Jesuit idea that we should sit down with people who are different from us, who disagree with us, listen to them with generous open hearts and allow our real uh, and, and substantial disagreements 
to prompt us into closer relationship and, and good productive compromises. Uh, when uh, the European Union continues to conduct itself in this opaque fashion, kind of very far removed from the grassroots, even if the policies are beautifully pristinely designed and engineered, they fail and flounder because they don't win the support of the average citizen. So we think that on a local level, on a regional level, on a national level, and even on a continental level, what we need to do is to engage in this uh, serious and sustained dialogue about our values and about the kind of environment and society we want to pass on to our grandkids. Uh, because the climate breakdown is happening now, it's irreversible, but that doesn't mean that there's no hope. We can act in such a way as to salvage much of the treasures that we already have. Okay, I'm average person that you referenced there. I recycle, I compost, I try not to use plastic bags, I'm careful about my A wattage and whatever. How would your Green New Plan affect me from an integral ecology perspective that I'm not already doing? We want to welcome and encourage all of those private individual endeavors and initiatives. And we in the center struggle to try to implement them in our own lives as well. But what's required is a societal shift. Liberation theology has taught the Christians this very clearly over the last generation, that when we understand sin individually, just individually, we understand it in a way that's deficient. We have to recognize that there's such a thing as structural sin, as systemic sin, and in environmental terms, our commitment to carbon emissions is tantamount to a kind of structural sin. So we need the structural conversion um, to remedy that. So what what that would mean is that uh, we would, as a society, commit to rapid and um, ambitious decarbonization efforts. So your energy, your electricity would no longer come from coal. It would come from renewable sources. And then as an integral ecology... Your car goes out the window? Uh, uh, the car doesn't go out the window, of course, but, uh, but we would definitely want to encourage active mobility where possible, a huge increase in public transport. Irish people love to go abroad, then come back and say, oh, the public transport in Berlin is amazing. Uh, they have seven different systems and they all intersect. Sure, if you lived in Berlin, you'd never need to own a car. Uh, but there's nothing special about Berlin. Uh, Waterford and Cork and Galway, how easy would it be to, to, to develop Lewis-like systems that would satisfy most people's mobility needs there? There's no... There's, there's no special uh, kind of genius that allows some countries to develop valid and viable public transport systems while we're struggling along. So it would mention the L word there. That's the same Lewis that they didn't even think to join it up. And the dogs in the street would have known it was a good idea to join up the two Lewis lines. And then we had to suffer the whole digging up of the streets again years later. A track record in Ireland is not great on any of this, is it? It really isn't. But the situation that we're in is so desperate that we just have to overcome the memories of our past failures. And I think, Pat, that that is a, a societal problem there, that uh, we very easily remember the places where the Irish state fails and flounders. But we forget all of the ordinary mundane ways in which the Irish state does a pretty good job. So the classic example there is, is public housing was set back so desperately by the failure of Ballymun. But the thriving communities in Coolock and Crumlin and all over Dublin are also public houses, social investment schemes that really uh, succeeded. So, uh, yeah, yeah. And on that, just to interrupt you there, yeah. Kevin, exactly. I think a lot of people would accept that that social housing policy in the 60s and that was, was wonderful. But we can't get a government to implement it now. And so we have a massive housing crisis. 
Yeah, I think if we had a bunch of TDs here with us, they'd say we can't implement it because the people keep voting for more of the same. The environmental crisis is such that we can't wait around until there's a, a dull majority for people who recognize that the climate catastrophe is going to be catastrophic impacts on, on our well-being. So we have to live in the real world where there are people who think that private profit trumps human well-being. So the solution that we've proposed in this manifesto is this commitment to deliberate dialogue about our democratic values and the things that we cherish as a means by which to reorganize the conversation around the environment so that we recognize that like insulation in social housing is an environmental issue. Uh, how we teach geography is an environmental issue. Whether or not you're able to get a bus in a, a rural town is an environmental issue. There's basically no concrete local political issue that doesn't break down as an environmental concern. And when we put the hard scientific fact that the earth is now going to heat probably beyond two degrees Celsius at the center of our concerns, a whole load of old kind of reliable truths are revealed to be myths and a whole range of new opportunities become possible. So what we call for in the paper is uh, active mobility, public transport, reorganization of our commitment towards rural communities, uh, universal basic services as our societal ambition. And we think that, that with these different measures in place, we won't just be able to develop the resilience we need for the coming decades. We'll also be able to make our society more just and more equitable. It'll be a better place to live. It'll be a better place for our kids to grow up. It makes sense. The time is right uh, for us to, to make these dramatic changes at the end of COVID-19. So, so that's our, our, our plea has been that, uh, that people would engage with this, that Christians would consider this devotionally and theologically, and that non-Christians would engage with this intellectually um, and recognize that this fundamental claim that we're making has real potential, that every societal crisis that we now face is to be understood as an expression of our environmental crisis. And the environmental crisis is a consequence of our societal in inequalities. And on that point, it is fair to say that the message hasn't got out, which I think is a real message, but I don't think it's got out there, Kevin, that we are facing disaster ecologically if there isn't drastic change. That is the key issue of the 21st century. I mean, we, we say this in the paper. We, we confess that our methods haven't worked. And uh, we describe this crisis as being the, the biggest single crisis humanity has ever faced. It's more technically challenging than space exploration, and it's more politically challenging than fighting the Nazis. This is the, this is the most difficult thing humanity has ever been asked to do. But the last year has shown us that there is a potential in human collaboration cross-culturally, uh, you know, spanning the continents to, to achieve amazing results when, we're, when we all recognize the simple fact that we are all in this together. You know, uh, if you'd said a year and a half ago that we would have... 12 or 14 different vaccines developed within a year for a brand new virus. No one would have believed it, but this huge collective effort has, has delivered what we hope in the new year is going to be an amazing uh, return to normalcy. So we're able to collaborate in a way that we never were before. And we need that ability because this challenge is so complicated and it does involve hardship. It does involve sacrifices. It does involve changes in the way that we um, have lived our lives. And that's gonna be uncomfortable for those of us who are wealthy and privileged 
And it still needs to happen because if it's uncomfortable for us, it's literally devastating for those who are on the margins. And it's not something that's impending, Pat. That's something we've, we've been wrestling with the last couple of years in the, in the centre. This isn't something that's coming down the road in 2030 or 2050. It's happening now. The Philippines is going to have 25 tropical storms this year. Some of those landed at more than 300 kilometres an hour. The climate is changing. And people who are poorest and most marginalised around the globe are going to suffer the most. So we who are relatively comfortable and relatively well off, it's, it's our absolute moral responsibility to act. Now, that's fine. That's lovely preaching. How does it work out politically? We think that the way forward is through serious dialogue with people who we disagree with so that we're able to recognize that we share things in common that are too valuable for us to let them go away just for the sake of temporary comfort. So where do you see that dialogue starting? We did have a citizens assembly on the environment. Yeah, we think that citizens assemblies should continue kind of in a semi-permanent state. Uh, we think that there should be uh, regional assemblies. We think that there should be local dialogues. We don't see any reason in the world why a parish priest and his parish community wouldn't be able to get people together, sit around a table and say, uh, we've got this expert in to explain the facts. Now let's have a conversation about how we as a locality want to respond. Um, you know, uh, you and I have talked in the past about uh, the deficits in cycling infrastructure in Dublin, and there's one particularly controversial scheme in Sandymount where over 3,000 people engaged in the public consultation, and yet so many thousands of people who are going to be affected by this plan feel as if they were not engaged. So that's the kind of democratic deficit that we're, we're recognizing, trying to put our finger on. So we need all kinds of different fora in which those conversations can happen so that the politicians do actually know the will of the people beyond just putting a tick in a box every couple of years. That's not sufficient democracy for us to be able to come to these kind of radical decisions. So we want to have what we talk about is an experimentation in dialogue. Let a thousand flowers bloom and let's see what really thrives and flourishes. What we want to is to create an ecosystem where dialogue is the way in which we engage in questions about uh, politics and the things we value instead of the acrimonious world of social media and commercial news media. It's a classically Jesuit idea, I think, an Ignatian idea uh, that we would sit down and deliberate with others. And it's a kind of secularized adaptation of that. But we think that, again, it's an idea whose time has gone. So we're proposing this as the beginning of a conversation about what a green transformation would look like in Irish politics and Irish society.